0: When my partner and I were furnishing this place, we'd go see a Restoration Hardware dining table for 5,000 bucks and we're like, surely somewhere in New York City has this table and is willing to part with it for 2,000. But how do you match that latent supply with the demand? And so I think there will be better ways in the future for us to have inventories online of things we own, have people able to bid on them, handle a lot of the sort of frictions. And and yeah, maybe LLMs are a great use case actually for, actually, can you have a little AI chatbot that chats with a bunch of sellers on your behalf and then agrees to one? and handles a lot of the logistics so it's a very greenfield opportunity in my mind and we've seen a number of billion dollar companies built in the startup world but i don't think we've really seen the end-to-end resale platform that i think can be a five billion dollar or ten billion dollar commerce company
1: hey everyone welcome to the third episode of all chat a podcast where we're aiming to deliver an unfiltered view behind the scenes of some of the most interesting and current topics within the gaming industry startups more broadly, and venture capital. Today, we will be discussing the future of shopping online, and I'm excited to be joined by several new faces as we dive into this topic. First, we have Emily Yang, better known as People Pleaser, one of the leading digital artists creating at the intersection of technology and culture. She's joined by Rex Woodbury, a former partner at leading global VC firm Index Ventures, and more recently, the founder and managing partner at Daybreak, as well as the author of Digital Native, a leading newsletter with over 50,000 subscribers covering the latest news and views on consumer tech and startups. And finally, there's Amber and myself partners at Patron, an early stage venture firm with a strong focus on gaming consumer startups. Prior to joining Patron, Amber was a YCN forerunner back founder that built a startup in the community software space, which sold to Discord, where she spent a few years leading the company's efforts to scale into non-gaming communities. Prior to Patron, I helped to scale Riot from zero to one, joining the company before League of Legends launched and helping to build out publishing and esports as Riot developed into one of the most valuable gaming companies in the world. Now let's dive into our discussion about the future of shopping online.
2: maybe we can start by talking a bit about Discord. You guys are both prolific users of the platform and clearly it's been evolving a lot in terms of how Discord is supporting shopping and creators. You can now buy downloadables, whether it's recipe books or uh, photography courses. And just excited to hear from both of you, like, What do you think about that space? Maybe Rex, we can start with you because Daybreak, you have a Discord community and yeah, curious what you, what
0: you're saying. I know much to the chagrin of some users. I mean, I I think a lot of people said, why didn't you do Slack? And you know, the, the more kind of millennial crowd. Um, but I thought, you know, you can't be a consumer technology investor or sort of live and breathe digital culture in the internet without trying out Discord. So it's a nice forcing function for people to, to go there. Um, and I always find it a bit more kind of a wild, chaotic frenzied, you know, community centric place. Um, Mm -hmm. Often when I'm talking about my interest in community, which is kind of a broad investment theme. And one of the reasons that I love tech, I I point to the 19 million, you know, weekly active servers on discord and you can find, you know, them for so many different interests. Um, But that always kind of excites me of, of how kind of on the internet, no niche is too niche. And I often kind of quote out um, Jack Conte from Patreon, I think has this great quote where he says, you know, if you grew up in a, small town with a thousand people and you know you're the only person interested in some niche thing or with some identity you know you're very lonely but if you come online one in a thousand I mean there are four and a half billion people online that's four and a half million people who are kind of like you and you can find your tribe and so you know when I think of discord I think of kind of the connective tissue for those communities and um, when it comes to commerce I mean I think commerce is a natural business model to layer on to any kind of Place where you have a lot of attention and eyeballs. Um, And it makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, a company that I know well and have spent a lot of time with is one called WAP. It's called, it's spelled W H O P. And the website, I think, is WAP.com. And Stephen, the founder, is sort of this young savant who used to um, build sneaker bots and sell sneaker bots online. And, And WAP is kind of the infrastructure for selling access to an IP proxy or a bot or very commonly Discord communities. So it's a paywall a lot for Discord communities. So I think it's natural to see Discord kind of integrate a lot of the natural features that people were already doing through different businesses
2: right and 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 when I was at discord that was something I was working on is just uncovering the millions of dollars like the very thriving economy that exists in all of these discord servers whether it's sneaker bots or just digital goods uh, so it's cool to see the platform fully evolve to support downloadables and um I guess Emily for you like you have your home on discord too right
3: I mean I come from more of like a digital, internet, crypto background, and everybody in the Web3 space uh, typically uh, surrounds their communities in Discord. Um, And, you know, for my own company, Shibuya, uh, we have a Discord community as well. But uh, other than the sort of the public community where, you know, this is where our fans come to sort of talk about, you know, the latest content that they watched and discuss, you know, the latest chapter of the anime and um, also what's coming up and, Um, for internally at Shibuya, we also manage our animation production in Discord as well. (laughs) It's funny because I actually, you know, asked Amber to connect me with somebody at Discord and we literally wrote up an entire doc about why Discord is better than Slack for even just managing animation production. Um, Even just, you know, a lot of elements from the UI is just better and more straightforward for Discord and also the calling experience in Discord is so much better than the one in Slack. And so we find it really funny that right now, at least in the industry, traditional animation and visual effects studios use uh, Slack mostly for um, it, internal communications and you know managing their production pipelines. But uh, we've started using Discord um, for Shibuya internally and it just works so much better. Like it's 3000 times better. Um, and this is not a paid <laughs> sponsored. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> this is happening, right Slack's gone.
3: Slack is not ideal. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean it's it's so cool because i think that uh it's so low friction now to just buy like any type of fun customizable like avatar decoration or cute little like skin within discord like do you see a future where emily people can um you know like buy and sell and trade animations or like within your server or how how do you think about like digital uh, goods or courses? Because you also have your Skillshare course, I do, yes.
3: Um, You know, I think that
2: the good thing about Discord is you can build a bunch
3: of custom bots. And so, you know, whether or not people want to, like, buy and trade animations, I think is to their own accord. I, myself, have my own reasons why. I would prefer those to be on chain um, because, you know, providence and all this kind of stuff. But I think that even just within Discord, you know, we built our own bot called, it's called Arisu, which is, you know, the Japanese take on Alice, but, you know, you can do a bunch of custom commands and then you can also, I don't know, we even built, because we were working on like an IP with Bruce Lee. So then we built a Bruce Lee wisdom bot where you can just summon commands and then it will just spit out, you know, random Bruce Lee wisdom from time to time. you know, just fun things like that, that you can't do anywhere else, I think uh, makes it so much easier and more exciting to manage a community um, who then, even if your community managers are, let's say, offline, they can sort of use these automations that you've built um, to interact with the platform uh, when, you know, a real person cannot be there for whatever reason. Hmm. Yeah.
1: How do you guys think about, Using communities to like organize commerce. So, I think Rex talked a bit about uh, WAP and like sneaker bots. And uh, you just think about like there are a lot more of this kind of like group organization around like finding what to buy, trying to get more leverage with like buying as a group. Um, yeah. So, I'm just curious, like, how you think platforms like Discord, as an evolution of like Facebook groups and WhatsApp groups, is changing like how people actually shop, like how you actually. Think about like forming communities around the act of shopping.
0: I mean, I think it's all in how you actually integrate a seamless commerce experience into more social community experience. Um, you know, I met a company recently that was kind of doing it with uh, re- the recognition. The kind of key insight was that a lot of these communities have sort of one person who is often looked to as the influential person or the expert, and so they were giving that person kind of easy tools to. Embed an easy link for kind of next generation affiliate where they could say, you know, I'm an expert on, you know, fixed up Toyota Camrys in this like car enthusiast marketplace or community, you know, in one click. Here's, here's a way for me to get attribution. I think it's a tough model. I mean, I've met like dozens and dozens of companies at this intersection of creator and commerce over the last few years and have been always kind of interested in what is the right model, especially when we always. You know, like any good venture investor, you're like, but in China, you know, social (laughs) commerce and this works, and why not in the West? Um, And I think there are subtle nuances, and so um, you know, I work with one one of my investments uh, is a company called Flagship, where the team was out of Instagram, built a lot of the creator and commerce products, and had the insights that you know you really needed to go through creators who direct their communities to their storefronts, and so what Flagship does is. Basically, anyone with an online following in under five minutes and just a few clicks can launch their own boutique storefront that they can white label and personalize. And you go from you know really being an influencer who is someone just spouting kind of hashtag sponsored on my my page to the next generation of small business retailer. So in some ways, I think of it under the hood as more of a B two B marketplace akin to Fair yep. between brands and retailers. But in this case, the retailer isn't the brick and mortar mom and pop on Main Street. It's it's a woman with you know, 80,000 followers in Idaho, who's really good at home decor influencing. Um, and so that's really, I think, well aligned business model where, you know, for, for consumers like us, we get to kind of shop recommendations in a much yeah. more natural way, which we already are doing, but, you know, in a, in a sort of more organic way, and the creator is actually a small business person. And then brands love it as a new acquisition channel where you know, they're all facing rising tax and really struggling with how to acquire customers efficiently post ATT. And so it gives them a new, nice kind of scalable way to do influencer. So I think like things like that are really interesting, but it, again, kind of it relies on the influencer to drive the community and the traffic to the store. Um, it might be more difficult if it's actually just more organically in a discord yeah. server or something like that.
1: Yeah. Cause I think one thing we talk a lot about between myself, Amber and Brian is like, if you look back the last 15, 20 years, like the internet's evolved a lot, but if you think about like how we shop online, It hasn't. If anything, it's just like advertising is a little bit creepier in terms of like all these other inputs, whether it's like things that we're saying to our friends, things in our email is like influencing like display ads or like video ads that we see while we're browsing the web in a like non-opt-in way. But yet it's still like pretty hard to like find which products are the best, how to actually find the lowest price, how to actually buy the thing that you want. Um, One thing you mentioned, which is kind of interesting, I'm, I'm curious, both like everyone's thoughts, like. It seems like there is a lot more innovation happening in like Korea, China, in uh, in Southeast Asia around how people shop. And I think there is a lot of this like, oh, why doesn't like PDD style group buying work? Why doesn't Billy Billy style uh, like commerce with with streamers work? I'm just curious, like why you guys think like some of these things which have taken off in Asia seem to work there, but like don't seem to work in the uh, US and Europe.
3: Do you want to go first?
1: A- anyone. Exactly. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. you know, I, well, as somebody who actually grew up in Asia, I can already say yeah. that people in Asia just are so different in the way they think. Um, and definitely, you know, that leads to obviously like the way they consume. And um, uh, I honestly think that, I don't know, like, how do you say this? People in Asia um, are like, they're, when they're consuming, they're thinking more, I think, sort of collectively Um, and I feel like in in the West, it's much more individualistic mindset and that's why you're seeing more of like the creepy, you know, in the West, I feel like this is a personalized ad or, you know, this is for you. Whereas I feel like in Asia, it's more of like a hive mindset of, okay, if everyone's buying this and I'm gonna buy this too. Um, So I I think that's at a very high level, um, you know, an obvious one as to why the purchase sort of model in Asia is like so different from the West
2: but I'm curious. I just, yeah, I mean, jumping off the back of that, like collective identity, like there's a political undercurrent in terms of like how that influences consumer behavior in Asia. Also having grown up in Asia and Hong Kong, um, that felt very obvious. And uh, I was looking at the app store, like top shopping apps. and It's interesting to see that a made in America shopping app is now in the top 10 currently in the app store. So how like the political landscape is affecting Maybe not the next generation of shoppers, but like the wider public to shop with more of a like nationalistic. Pride is interesting. That um, Rex, I was talking to you about your your website and how there's like this element of chaos in it that feels so um,
0: <laughs> organized like, chaos. I hope
2: organized chaos that yeah. like Gen Z uh, love and it does remind me of some of the UX of the more, like Asian shopping apps that Endless feels cool. chaotic.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not. It's not your average uh, U.S. venture capital. When you go website. on an Asian website, um, it's
3: just madness like there is no there's no clean ui ux it's just product after product and then price after price after price and um that's just the way that they're used to so
0: yeah yeah i mean it is i mean china really skipped um you know desktop and and i think you see it in and went straight to mobile and you see it in the way that commerce is much more mobile centric and you know amazon is kind of just like their mobile app is like a shrunk down version of the desktop app and you know, there's not that much kind of mobile first thinking. And we see kind of new newcomers like whatnot, and, and others, um, you know, make some some good innovation. But I think that is still one difference. And then also, yeah, the cultural kind of norms that you guys are talking about in terms of, I don't know, I mean, in the US, I think we were just really taught online shopping is more utility driven. Um, you know, I think like 80% of people that go to amazon.com end up completing a purchase. I think that's among prime users. But you know, it's, it's just very kind of search driven. And no one has quite figured out that more kind of discovery-driven, serendipitous form of shopping online that's more akin to the shopping mall of the 20th century. And you know, maybe it'll be something like Flagship. Maybe Pinterest will finally nail commerce. Maybe Discord. Um, maybe Instagram Shop. I think you know, for my from my mind, it's always been social platforms got really big in the U.S. and the way to go was sort of build social and have all the eyeballs, and then layer on commerce. Whereas in the West, they had, or in the East rather, they had a lot more success with kind of building social and commerce at the same time, because people were a lot more open to that.
1: What do you guys make of, there's this uh, video on from Douyin a couple, I think it was like a week ago, the woman who's literally showing products for like three seconds and then putting it down. And then I think she drove like something like over a hundred million dollars of sales in like a day. Um, And like that kind of, that's like the extreme version of like curator, commerce where people are literally just like watching her show like hundreds of items and literally going like buying them, like as she's, as she's showing them, um, versus like us model where I think you mentioned when you're talking about flagship, like this idea of like curator commerce seems like it hasn't picked up as much, and it is still a lot more driven by like advertising and things like that. Yeah.
0: Well, I think, um, I love that word curator because I think it gets at another key insight where, you know, we all went crazy for the word creator and, you know, it used to be influencer. And I think curator is actually a better word because for a while we were seeing every creator and their mom launch their own, you know, beauty brand and their own skincare brand. And everyone was really trying to be their own brand. And I think you can see that fatigue even in celebrity brands. Like I remember seeing that there was some sort of uh, post uh, recently I saw on Instagram that Brad Pitt was launching a skincare line. And I read the comments and it was like, not another line. Like I don't think we need this. Like I'm exhausted. Too many celebrity brands. So it was interesting to see the kind of cultural shift there and the backlash to it. Um, and really, the only ones that really broke through were those that had kind of a net new insight, like Skims being kind of taking the insight that shapewear is outerwear, or Fenty doing kind of makeup for for all colors. Um, but I think much more, many many more of these creators are better curators than they are actually brand creators. And so I think Jason, that's a good point where, you know, what is actually what have they been doing the last 10 years influencing and directing people to trustworthy recommendations and brands and products. And so much of that has been lost with no attribution um, or really hard to measure ROI. And so I think the better systems that can underpin that existing behavior are more compelling than this idea that everyone is going to be their own brand.
2: Yeah, it's, it's also like the, the curator opportunity allows for so much democratization in terms of services that were previously the preserve of uh, like higher net worth individuals. I think the expert is a good example of this, right, where you can connect to an interior designer expert. You do your video call, like you get your home interior design. And I'm curious how that behavior of curator experts is going to bleed into other verticals. Like you can see that happening with stylists, like being able to connect with the everyday stylist and how that's going to fuse into allowing people to earn money who are not necessarily creators or celebrities building a whole audience, but they're just really good at curating stuff, which I guess Instagram has kind of taught a whole generation of consumers to, to be excellent curators. Um, yeah. I'm curious, like, what do you think about that? And, and how, like, your, your experience, especially, like, working with, like, the luxury side of shopping, um, and how that kind of comes across? I think
3: that this is an interesting juxtaposition, because there's definitely those two facades to shopping. I want to go back to what Jason was talking about for the, you know, super quick three second show you probably yeah. probably, I think that is very much a, still a reflection of the type of Asian um, shopping sites that you see, which are really just kind of like an online version of a catalog, which is, you know, you go on there and then you're being shown a bunch of different uh, products all at once. And I feel like, um, you know, that is to me, I feel more like of a utilitarian where I'm looking for something or I might not even know that I want something, but once you show it to me, I'm like, oh, right. I, I now remember that I was looking for, you know, this um, this spoon that, you know, and that you just showed me and now I'm going to buy it. Versus, I think the curated um, approach is, uh, like Rex was saying, I think born out of a much more sort of influencer uh, culture, which is just so different. Um, but it's it's funny because Asia is like this. I think you know when you're doing the catalog style, super fast browsing, it's more for everyday goods that you're trying to buy. And then yeah. for the luxury stuff, it's, there's not even curation anymore. They just, everybody collectively have in their heads the brands that they all agree are, you know, a displaying yeah. of a, some kind of status of wealth, you know. So yeah, like when I was working with Caring recently, all of their brands obviously, you know, are, uh, rem- uh represent that, at, at least in, in Asia. And that's just such a big thing there, um, where, uh, I th- yeah, I, you know, I'm not a historian, so I can't really track to, as to why that's, that's been a thing now, but yeah, Asians just love to buy luxury goods that you can then display to um, other people to say, oh, here, you know, it's just, it's a status symbol. It it exists in the West as well, but definitely, I think, uh, to a lesser uh, degree. Um, and I feel like you're seeing the West sort of, uh, pick up or evolutionize differently as well, especially with Gen Z, you know, they're all about either stealth wealth or they're going the rebellious angle where they just don't even want to um, support these kinds of luxury brands at all, which you're not seeing uh, reflected as much in in the East
2: just yet.
1: Yeah, I I think one one thing, so I I was an angel investor in this company called Heistavidy, which started off as like a sneaker blog in like in Berlin. And I think one thing that they saw was that like a lot of these like luxury couture like houses were having a really hard time, like reaching and resonating with younger audiences. And so they really did rely on like third party, whether it was like media companies to try to like make those brands seem cool. Or I know when we were at Riot, like we obviously did the thing with Louis Vuitton. And then now you look at, name your LVMH brand or caring brand. Like each one is signed, like La Seraphim was like LVMH, I think in Hyphen is Prada. Like every single member of New Jeans has like a different, like luxury brand that they're associated with. And so, It seems like people are leaning a lot harder into this, like, how do you associate your product and brand with things that resonate with younger people so that they'll actually think of it in a positive light, despite like the general trend being like people moving away from like, uh, things that are super expensive or super flashy and trying to be more low key. Um, so it's interesting to see kind of how that trend has evolved uh, over time.
2: Yeah. And, and then I think like to layer on the, the kind of gaming perspective. Yeah. Name, name, your brand that, that, that has not shown up yet in Roblox or Fortnite. And, uh, yeah, curious what you guys think about where, you know, this is going to evolve, like luxury brands or any brand, like experimenting with digital goods or digital twins. Um, Rex, any thoughts on like,
0: the yeah, way? I mean, We've probably all seen those headlines of, you know, wasn't it a Gucci bag in, in Roblox, Roblox uh, selling for more than, you know, the, the actual physical Gucci item? So I mean, yeah, I think luxury is so interesting because it's all about status, right. And status and scarcity, which are closely related. And I think you can have that as much online as you can offline. Um, and, you know, I mean, with who knows, you know, what will happen in five years or 10 years after Apple's vision pro and with more AR and VR, and maybe we're all spending more time in, in avatars or in game worlds or just kind of more immersive experiences and I think I saw some stat that I don't know seventy percent of Gen Z or I'm not, I'm not making up the number there but cared as much maybe it was of Roblox users specifically but it was sort of some statistic I saw it was either seventy percent of Gen Z or 70 percent of Gen Z Roblox users but some high proportion of folks cared more about what their Roblox was wearing sure. roblox avatar was wearing than their offline one and so Yeah, I'm sure that'll continue. And we also see huge tailwinds with Gen Z and luxury, where I think the average Gen Z buys luxury for the first time at like age 17. And for millennials, it was like age 19 or 20. And I think really the reason for that is this kind of like treat yourself mentality where it's kind of like, well, the world's ending and like capitalism is terrible and climate change is happening. And like it's this kind of like nihilism that undergirds a lot of the trends we read about. With quiet quitting and Nepo baby backlash and all of this, but it kind of is this idea of treat yourself and might as well buy the nice, you know, product ag or whatever. Um, so I think that'll continue both offline and in digital item form.
3: No, I mean, as a, I would say somebody who my online assets are worth a lot more than my real world assets. Um, as in, I've literally spent like seventy thousand dollars on an NFT in the past, but I've never bought anything nearly as expensive in real life. Um, it, it's this is something that I think I didn't truly come to understand until COVID happened, uh, and where you know I, I think that being on online and and you know from playing the Nintendo Switch to going into you know Decentraland and things like this made me realize that um, so sort of truly the power of uh, digital goods and, you know, why they can be appealing. But, you know, I think that being said, um, you you need something, you know, whether it's the blockchain or something else, something needs to come in and insert artificial scarcity. Because just like in the real world, you know, um, a Birkin bag is expensive because they're rare. So uh, how do you, you know, basically, in, in, in a digital world where you could technically just uh, duplicate infinite 3D broken bags, how do you sort of introduce that kind of artificial scarcity, which is something that I personally find so fascinating about the blockchain as well. And and it was interesting to see sort of this experiment of all these luxury brands come into the Web3 space during the last few years and try to, you know, establish their presence and how well they were doing. But I think that, uh, you know, within that sort of internet niche, uh, there's such a specific culture that makes it really hard for a luxury brand to just come in and do well immediately because you have to also, you know, sort of be, understand how the technology works or, you know, the whole ethos as to why people are consuming a certain way. Um, and that's not something I think that a lot of big brands have fully understood yet, but I'd be curious to see how that evolves going forward.
1: I think when, when they mentioned about the, the Birkin bag and the um, scarcity versus value, uh, our friend felicia from play ventures actually wrote this whole i think it was like a thread online about how hermes actually like they fully gamified their like shopping customer client relations process where it isn't just about spending the most money it's about like going and sequentially buying like all the things and leveling up your status within their like client base over time to be able to like buy one through the store directly versus going on the secondhand market or going to like a a second-hand shop to buy um I think that's interesting because I think a lot of kids are they're growing up on Roblox and they're growing up in these environments where it isn't just about like spending a lot of money on something rare. It's about doing a lot of things to like earn the right to like level up your characters and have more access to different parts of the world that doesn't exist for everyone. And so I'm, I'm curious like how you guys think about that kind of like gameplay mentality around other elements of like shopping or like Engaging with brands and things like that.
3: I think like this is reminding me of Animal Crossing being a really, really good um, example of this. So during COVID, you know, everybody was playing Animal Crossing, and you know, you, sort of the only way to upgrade your island is either through putting in time, or you know, like whether in yeah. through time you can collect these things. Then, and if you can collect enough of these things, then you can get one of these things. And so, you know, when you sort of the ultimate display of wealth, let's say, you know, in Animal Crossing isn't through any sort of direct financial input, it's all your time. Yeah. So if you go to somebody's island, that's super beautiful, and they have golden bridges and stone lions everywhere, you know that they have spent a lot of time in this game that, you know, this is not really replicatable anywhere else. Um, so, you know, I, I find that super interesting in how basically you know, in a digital world, you can turn either it's like a financial asset or but using gameplay mechanics to sort of show your status as a result.
2: Yeah, I think that that's something that like modern, like the brands of today are missing because it isn't just about how much time you spend like in the in-store experience or how much time you spend playing mini games on Chanel or anything. It's just about your dollar amount or your social cloud. And that feels antiquated in terms of like next generation. It should be like time invested in creating experiences that branch off the brand so yeah it's gonna be interesting to see who who takes that on in the next 12 months yeah. I guess um, yeah go for, it. Go,
1: no, go for it
2: I was just gonna say we have to talk about resale obviously like Rex you you've spoken a uh, like written a lot about this and and how how it's evolved and obviously it's uh, like prolific behavior within discord and um, I, I guess still like you know top apps in the app store are Goat, R, Depop, um, and so what? What's your latest thoughts on like resale opportunity?
0: Oh well, yeah, I mean, I I love resale, and um, yeah, I just wrote a, a piece recently about resale because I I did this investment in a young woman building in the resale space, and you know I think um, you know it, it just is such an opportunity that is unsolved by technology still in so many ways, um, and what I mean by that is. You know, like most of us don't really want to upload photos of our wrinkly clothing and catalog them and organize them on Poshmark and have 37, you know, back and forth messages with buyers and sellers. And it's just such a cumbersome experience. Um, and so what is the way to fix that? I mean, I think it's it's challenging. Um, one way you can do it is sort of can we ingest data from, from people on what they own and, and sort of their closets and then make it easier for solving the supply problem and and easier to offload stuff. Um, But a challenge is just matching supply and demand in these marketplaces. I mean, resale is growing 11 times faster than broader uh, retail. It is, I think, one of the biggest shifts of this generation as we see sustainability move into commerce and people want to power the more circular economy. Um, But the right business models and the right technology haven't really been built. Poshmark, I don't know if you guys have used it. It feels very like Craigslist in the 2000s to me. Um, you know, I think there needs to be something better. Um, and I don't know, I mean, I'm looking around my apartment here and when my partner and I were furnishing this place, you know, we, we would always say to each other, you know, we'd go see a restoration hardware dining table for 5,000 bucks. And we're like, surely somewhere in New York city, someone is willing to part has this table and is willing to part with it for 2000, 2,500, you know what I mean? It's kind of, but how do you match that supply and that kind of that latent supply with the demand? Um, and so I think there will be better ways in the future for us to have inventories online of things we own, have people able to bid on them, um, handle a lot of the sort of frictions. And, and yeah, maybe LLMs are a great use case, actually, for, you know, actually, can you have a little AI chatbot that chats with a bunch of sellers on your behalf and then agrees to one and handles a lot of the logistics. Um, so it's a very greenfield opportunity in my mind. And we've seen a number of kind of billion-dollar companies built. In the startup world but i don't think we've really seen the end-to-end resale platform that i think can be a five billion dollar or ten billion dollar commerce company
1: yeah i think one of the problems with shopping especially on the visual side is like in a lot of cases so the amazon case where you know the exact product the brand and model amazon is the best solution and it's gonna be hard-pressed to, to beat amazon but most of the time when we're shopping whether it's for clothing for furniture like we don't know exactly what we want to buy we have a general idea of like some characteristics, but if you think about like how visual platforms have evolved, like they have become like, even pin- we were talking about Pinterest, like it's a very ad driven and you're being shown a lot of things that is just like the highest bidder is trying to get in front of you yeah. based on your demographic data, not necessarily based on like visual cues that are tied to things that you might want to look for. And I know like on the Patreon front, like we're really excited about companies that are trying to innovate more on like the visual search and try to. Create like a better shopping experience where you don't know exactly what you want, but you have a rough idea, and then it helps match that to like items which exist in the real world, world, whether it's a like a new product or whether it's it's resale. And I think the thing you mentioned about resale is like the other. I think on the one end of the commerce spectrum, there's like Shein and this idea of like disposable commerce, where literally we're ruining the planet, and people are buying things that last like for a couple of wears. And on the complete other side of the spectrum is this idea that you buy fewer things, but you buy better things. And at some point in time, you probably don't want to wear it anymore, but they can, it can still last for a long time. And so how do you get that into the hands of like other people who would want to buy that, use that, wear that, what have you. And, and I think like part of the problem is like indexing the supply side, but I think an even bigger problem right now is like organizing it so that people on the demand side can even find it. Cause you don't, if you don't know exactly what you're looking for, it's like very hard to Okay, so
3: I was literally talking about this the other day with my friend, and I have a lot of ideas about this. So, you know, AI is a huge thing right now. Uh, First of all, I'm sure somewhere out there, there's a company that uh, should, you know, disguise itself as a note taking app or, you know, just sort of you can record your real life conversations with your friends. But simultaneously, you're actually also training, you know, an AI model of version of yourself. And then, you know, eventually you'll create this network of, you know, trained AI models of individual people. And then there should be a social network based on this so that, you know, if Jason's my friend, I can summon Jason, let's say Jason's birthday is coming up and, you know, or, or I just want to know specifically about Jason's taste and this AI model, you know, let's assume has heard, you know, endless conversations. So, you know, they have a pretty good idea about what he likes, what he doesn't like. So then I can talk to his um model basically and you know have a conversation with him and be like in this scenario like what would jason most likely be uh um purchasing or you know his birthday's coming up what should uh, i get him this year it's like oh well i heard him talking a lot about you know this particular thing this uh, year and so i think that that's a huge opportunity um you know but then obviously i think that the evolution of that too is maybe going to be close to what we're seeing now is that then companies are going to catch on to this and then they're going to start doing product placement where they're going to pay these models to subtly drop in like, Oh, go buy, tell this person to go buy this product. But, you know, there has to be some line between there where, because I think right now, and even in the real world where we trust, you know, uh, sort of product recommendations the most are from people that we know in real life. Uh, And so I think that this is the sort of like a next best thing that we can do to use technology to sort of mimic that
0: in a world I think that's not, a, yeah. a world <laughs> I think it, that's really asked, interesting right? I also think just to your point on search Jason I mean I think um we're seeing much more search that is contextual in nature where it is less um me searching black jeans yeah. and more me searching going out outfit and you know Sheehan actually does this pretty well like I yeah. think um their recommendations are pretty impressive so you know, that'll be more I think the future as well um, where it is yeah. just kind of more yeah shopping based on those things and I talked to a lot of brands who are like oh when it comes to resale they're like my item or my garment is meant to be a forever you know purchase or something and I'm like that is great but unfortunately <laughs> that is not where like user consumer behavior is right I think that might be true but a lot of people might say well I posted it in like three grid posts and like I kind of want a new one jacket for next winter to do something different so I think we're going to see that circular economy spin faster, but it just needs the right company to remove friction from it.
2: I, I think that this also ties into this idea of like girl math, like you, you were making that behavior of like, okay, well, yeah, I will buy this designer thing. I'll wear it three times and I'll put it on the real, real, and they'll come pick it up for me. And I, I have definitely become, that is a behavior change for me where now I'm like, okay, if I buy this, I know I'm going to wear it's time and then I'm going to get it on the real real. But there's still so much friction in actually getting it to the real real and yeah. then creating that behavior loop. Um but but Emily, what you were saying around like having a digital twin that like I can speak to to your twin and like know what you like and understand your taste better makes me think of like Venmo, and back in the day when Instagram had that feature where you could see uh, what like what all liking. of your friends were liking, and that was just the most addictive thing. Um, because it is so addictive to like st- see what people are doing on Venmo and like see what your or friends like. We had little twins
3: uh, who knew yeah.
2: about things that we
3: already bought and then we don't want anymore, and then without us having to do it, then the-
1: they just like communicate with each, each other. other, yeah,
3: and then they yes. make the transaction. They're like, "Great, Amber, I'll buy this bag from you because I'm looking for it and I know you don't want it anymore." <laughs>
0: No, I think that's, that's literally what I mean by these like AI bots where the LLMs can do that on the resale site. And it might just say, you know, maybe the AI bot is named Rachel or something. And and you get a ping from Rachel and it's like, Hey, like, you know, someone was interested in your like Woolrich jacket for 600. And you're like, well, I wasn't going to get rid of it till the next winter, but like 600 is pretty good because I only got it for 700. So like, and you just say, sure. And then she's like, great, like prepaid label coming to your house. You know what I mean? I think that stuff is. Super interesting. And it just, and to your point, Amber on girl math, I mean, I think resale at checkout is going to be table stakes because, you know, BNPL drives up conversions 20 to 30% at checkout. But yeah, when I go to buy that $700 Woolrich jacket, if it says estimated resale value, 500, I'm like, great. I'm only spending 200, right? Like in that moment of friction at checkout, I actually just say, of course, like I'll do this. And, and yeah, I mean, maybe I can then sell it for easier later, but I think every brand wants AOVs to go up and card abandonment rates to go down and conversion to improve. And that is such a no brainer in my mind.
2: It should totally be a checkout a hundred percent. Like, I mean, yes, my, my average orders would go up way more if I knew the, the, yeah, what the
1: resale is. we would spend a lot more. uh, (laughs) You're rationalizing how much you're spending on on that day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Cool.
1: I, I guess what do you guys think about this idea of like, renting things versus owning them. Cause I think that's also a challenge for a lot of people is this idea that like, oh, well, like they, there is some like comfort or status associated with like, hey, like I'm owning this. It's not like an article clothing that I'm renting to use one time on the flip side is like, there's going to be certain types of items. Like, I think like our our kids, I have two daughters that are six and seven and they love skiing, but just by nature of them growing every year, like they're going to grow out of their ski boots. They're going to grow out of their skis. and but we do it enough where like, it doesn't make sense to rent it like each time we go. So like I buy skis and ski boots for them, but then like the next year I have to like sell it back to either the store or like there's certain categories of items that it feels like it probably should just be like a subscription, like a kid's ski subscription. And then I just like pay every year and get like close to new like best gear. And and there's like, it's more affordable for everyone else who, who wants to use it as well. I'm just curious, like how you guys are, have thought about kind of like rental models versus like rental.
3: I think about this all the time because I'm a digital nomad. So I have not you know, had like a physical home or location for the past three years. And I run into this problem all the time where I'm like, okay, well now I'm here and it's cold and I need to buy a jacket and I wish I, you know, but I just bought a jacket three months ago, like a puffer jacket three months ago, but I'm not going to bring that with me because it's too, because basically you know, we've been trained to only travel with a carry on pace at yeah. all times. So it's always I, I always joke that my most valuable asset is luggage space. <laughs> and So if it's not, you know, so it's always a battle about how much does this physical thing actually worth to me versus like whether or not I actually want to bring it around, which is why I keep thinking about this idea of, you know, why digital assets are really cool. And then right now, I think there's a huge dissonance where we haven't figured out a good way to translate digital assets into real world assets but let's say you know a luxury brand which has a powerful network around the world and i talk about this with my nomad friends all the time you know let's say there's like louis vuitton bag where i can purchase the digital version of it and but having this digital version of the bag you know if if i land in paris then they know that okay i'm in paris and now i have access to uh, you know they'll they'll send it to me to my hotel in paris and then i can use it for a week and then i can send it back and then you know when i go to milan the same thing will happen this is de- and and you know would i pay a premium for this i think that i would and this is something that i talk about with my nomad friends all the time um in terms of like creating this i guess hybrid network of digital assets um you know where i, I would say currently at least more luxury brands have that kind of global network where if they do have a, a physical store or the the sort of supply within, you know, every different corner of the earth, basically. But this is something that I think about all the time, because I think there's just so much waste uh, currently going around with people buying something and then either leaving it behind or not myself, yeah. I'm lazy, too. So even though, yes, the, the concept of resale is really great to me, um, realistically, I'm not, I'm not going to actually go, go and, you know, put it up on Depop or something, you know,
1: yeah. all
2: right. Well, Japan Airlines earlier this year, they trialed that clothing rental with Uniqlo. So if you land in Tokyo, um, you basically get a bunch of of clothes and they just rent it to you for inbound travelers. So I I think that behavior is, is coming. And I think one of the challenges that retailers have is they don't actually have a true global view on their customer. So if you're here and you're buying something in Toronto and then you're going to Taiwan, that is actually where blockchain could be very interesting because then you get a much more like transparent view of a customer mm-hmm. like globally um and yeah i i agree like the the, the most valuable thing being your luggage space is just <laughs> so true
1: yeah i think that that goes back to just like understanding your customer and like what they actually like want like what is valuable to their life and how do you how do you actually like like offer your product in a way that meets that. Cause I think that, that um example about like traveling different places and getting the, the handbag there, the reality is like, if you just buy a bunch of handbags and 99% of the time it's sitting in your closet, like you're not, the utility is around obviously like the physical utility of it, carrying whatever you need to carry, but then also like having the bag when you're going to whatever events or what have you. That's not too similar from, I know we, we face this problem at Riot with League where We sell a bunch of skins. There's no way to show your skins to anyone. You can only show one skin at a time when you're playing that champion in the game. And then there's like no other, and then over time, like you buy more skins and then you just have this like endless catalog of skins that you no longer use. And maybe it reminds you of like, when you played League like 10 years ago, but like that's not necessarily like how you would want to use that or the value you get out of the product doesn't equate to like how you actually get access to it. And so I think like being more creative around like selling people and giving people products in a way that matches, like how they want to use it is something that like could, could be a big opportunity because it seems like we're stuck in these models that have been around for like hundred years. Yeah. Hmm.
2: I remember, um, back when I was building Zyper, one of the things we did with Gucci was allow them with that, with that fan community, Uh, We we sort of trialed this, we presented it to them, that they could basically have an AR sticker of like a cool Gucci logo. And anyone in the top fan community would be able to just superimpose that sticker, like onto a picture of them in a white t-shirt, just like through an AR sticker that was like 100% realistic. And it was quite terrifying to them at the time that I feel like that is obviously where it's going to go, because if I just want to flex in the changing room, like because that is a massive behavior, uh, too, It's like, you know, you just go into Balenciaga changing room, take a photo up on social. Great. Don't even need to buy this anymore. But I think the idea that like you'll be able to have, uh, you know, like AR, AR, like I think is still uh little early, but that you will be able to buy, you know, more digital stickers and items from brands that, uh, yeah. Get superimposed over feels like a natural evolution where digital fashion doesn't yet have the platform for you to show your digital dresses or. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that that's like the, and people ask a lot about kind of like, when is digital fashion going to emerge or like when's the right time. And I think like for Fortnite and for League of Legends, like it makes a ton of sense because people are spending so much time in those games. And even if it's not necessarily like you personally, like as the champion or as the character you're playing, like it is the style of that character represents like who you are and how you play. And so it did make a lot of sense to either work with real world fashion brands or just to create a lot more personalization around like how those characters existed in that world. I think the challenge with a lot of the early attempts on kind of the more pure play fashion side outside of gaming is that there isn't yet that place that people actually go and they care how they look. And I think until there is like, and and I think that's why like AR, AR works because if it's just a filter that you can put on Instagram, snap, wherever TikTok, um, people do see you, um, and it's people that you care about seeing you, but if it's like in other places where people won't see you, then it doesn't have that utility. Um, It'll be interesting to see like what type of platforms can evolve that will become that place. So whether whether it's another game like League Fortnite, I guess now Valorant uh, is is that for sure. But how that will emerge outside of gaming is uh, will be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I
3: think that. This goes back to, I know the world is hating on blockchain and the metaverse right now, but it's really truly because there's no good display layer for it. So the infrastructure yeah. already exists, right? That's the whole point of the blockchain. Yeah. It's not, you know, because it's a buzzy yeah. word or whatever. So right now that yeah. I own all these assets or whatever in the future, let's say if everybody just agreed, okay, we're all going to use, you know, these Apple ridiculous headphones, which I'm sure that's actually not the future, but let's just say hypothetically, this is the case. And then in there, you can display these things. Then I think uh, across the world, suddenly everybody's going to get it and be like, oh, and why is this different from, you know, having a skin in like Valorant or League is because, you know, they're different yeah. companies. So I can't, if, if I have something in, you know, this game, I can't show it, you know, I can't, that's not transferable to another game. And that's like yeah. the problem with like Web 2 digital assets, which is that they're not transferable to another realm or, you know, they're, they're centralized, right? But the whole decentralized yeah. concept is so that, you know, it, it goes back to, Uh, people that you care to see can see you, you know, with us. So the infrastructure already exists, but right now I don't think anybody has found a good, you know, unified display layer for this to exist. And that's why it hasn't worked yet.
2: Mm. Yeah. No interoperability. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know we're kind of like coming up on time. Um, Any, any, hot takes or discussion points we haven't touched on jason
1: i guess like how do you guys like how have your own shopping habits changed in like the last 12 months are you still shopping online the same way are you still using the same apps and sites i'm just curious like yeah
0: i return a lot of stuff (laughs) i think more more than i used to and i like my partner and i joke that like jeff Bezos is going to catch on to us because We just like I feel like it's so much stuff on Amazon and I try, you know, I buy like, you know, four things to see which size I like. And then I return the other three. And I mean, Amazon to its credit has made it so much easier, but I'm like, they, they can't be, um, doing very well based on us as customers. Um, and so that's one new habit, I would say, um, just a lot more kind of mimicking what I would have bought offline. Let me just buy three sizes and then try it and return. Um, I think that that's kind of the main shift on my end and then trying out new apps. And I think, um, I'm still kind of enjoying the like omni channel, you know, uh, see it in, in the store, maybe in person and then buy it online or vice versa.
1: Yeah. I think the shipping thing, Amazon, at least like when I use it now, if I just want to return stuff, like to drop it off at like a UPS store, it costs like a dollar now. So I think they're, they're starting, slowly starting to like, disincentivize that behavior. But the reality is like they made a table stakes for everyone to offer free shipping and returns. And if you think about the grand scheme of like what's good for the environment, like obviously like disposable clothing, clothing production is horrible, but shipping stuff back and forth (laughs) is probably just as bad, if not worse, but that's like the default consumer behavior now. So I think it's something that everyone has to, has to deal with.
2: It does feel like the days of free shipping and returns may be over. Um, yeah. I think for me, um, very exciting. This year was the first year I went to Costco and big fan of Costco. And I think that there is an opportunity to create more of these digital member clubs. Like what does a digital version of Costco look like? There's a newsletter I'm on called Celeb where you basically share your receipts of like what you've bought. And at the end, everybody pools their discounts. So, you know, when you buy something and you get like 10% off or 15% off, like to come back, there's just this huge list of like aggregated discounts um, for this like growing like network of nice. friends. So I, I think, um, yeah, Costco is a new, new behavior for me. Here for it.
0: <laughs> best, the best.
2: What about you Emily? Um,
3: you know, I've I've never been a big shopper. Just ever in my life, shopping kind of stresses me out. Um, I'm the type of person where when I go into a store, and this is goes, I'll, I'll you'll never find me just online shopping for no reason. Like if I'm shopping, it's because I have something very specific in mind, and I'm going to purchase it. I'm yeah so then, uh, sure. i would say if <laughs> anything my shopping has probably dwindled in the past few years just because of you know how much i'm traveling and the more you travel you're like okay i the last thing i need is just physical stuff because there's just more things for you to worry about um and so yeah i probably like my, my shopping habits have have gone to maybe more uh, sort of like online as in literally digital assets but then i think okay if i buy this it's not going to be you know extra taking up extra space anywhere. Um, and then I think that if there's, you know, more and more products developed out there, like the AI, lovely AI concept that we're talking about, where it's, you know, trusted sources that can help me better, you know, spend less time browsing and more time yeah. actually things that I want and need. That would be really amazing. So I am looking forward to that.
1: Yeah, I'm 100% with you there. It's like, like shopping should become more efficient over time and you should be buying better stuff that you have to replace less often. But I feel like it's actually become less efficient and you're buying more stuff that breaks faster. And so I think one thing, like whenever I am trying, or when I want to buy something new, I feel like searching online to like read lists and rankings and stuff. It feels like at this point, like 90% of those are like paid, like sponsors are writing those lists. And so I, I really do appreciate when I, Find out that like somebody that I'm friends with is like really into some particular thing that I want to I'm looking into buying, and then I rely like much more heavily on like their own them having spent like dozens of hours doing research or buying a bunch of things and and sharing their learnings. Um, it's surprising that there still isn't a great way for that to be organized online, yeah. but here we are like I, I still think like a lot of those more serendipitous conversations have driven. Like, for example, I recently bought and built for the first time a keyboard, a mechanical keyboard. And it turns out we had like three founders in our portfolio that are like super deep into that and had a lot of good tips and good entry points to get into it. And I think I really value like, like having those points of discovery where you can dive into something new, but feel like very informed about it because of someone you trust. You know,
3: what I found actually was useful recently was that, um, I'm getting more into skincare now and then so I'll talk to friends who have really amazing skin and then they'll recommend products and things like that and then I might buy some try some but I found that you know using chat gpt has been really helpful not in asking it what I should buy but I will really be like okay I have these products you know tell me you know which ones are redundant or you know what in what order should should I use these products and then it will actually you know tell me what each product is good for like you know what what ingredients this one has and what that ingredient does you know why that's good for skin and then it'll also rearrange it and when I add a new product I'll be like okay I just bought this one you know keeping in the same chat I feel like I just bought this product where would you slot it into my routine and then it will actually tell me okay well you know this one is redundant to this product but if you really wanted to use both of them then you can put it you know you can use it after you use this one so that's something that I've found has been super helpful
1: yeah, Very I think cool. like uh, now yeah, I'm gonna you, try that. Yeah, yeah, yeah post purchase, <laughs> so like how do you get more out of the products you already <laughs> yeah, bought? because then like, you're not paranoid like, oh, think. I'm
3: kind of, right. I'm getting upsold by something. But it's more just based on you know, uh, just like the, the ingredient and why it's good and where I should use it. Yeah. yeah.
2: Mm, Maximize utility. Very cool. <laughs> yeah.
1: Cool. Yeah, I think that they covered. Cool. We covered a bunch of topics. Um, was a lot of fun. Awesome. Chatting with her. Oh, so I'll
3: be expecting a report for each and one of you guys' skincare routines updated tomorrow. <laughs> I'm
0: gonna I'm gonna paste it into chat GPT tonight.
1: I can't wait. Right. I, I do not wait, want my skin. So. I'll <laughs> uh, <awesome. laughs> my fan. She is insane, but like my mine is probably the absolute worst.
0: I'm just gonna learn that everything I pay a ton of money for does nothing <laughs> <laughs> So that's what I'm gonna do. Yeah. Anyway.
3: <laughs>
0: awesome. Well enjoy the weekend, guys.